If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Peter Hennessy, a professor of history at Queen Mary University of London. Peter is the author of a new book, Winds of Change, Britain in the Early 60s, which explores a pivotal period in the country's history containing political scandal, the fear of nuclear war and a failed attempt to join the European economic community, among other things. Peter spoke to our editor, Rob Attar, at his office in the House of Lords, where he sits as a crossbench peer. So, Peter, first of all, this is obviously quite a personal history for you because it encompasses your formative years. I'd be interested to know what, to what extent your memories of this time accord with how history now views this period. That's a very interesting question because it's a double-edged thing, writing about the history of one's own times, because you re-walk through it, you cross the terrain that you actually lived and breathed crossing when you were much younger, and the sights and the sounds come back, and, of course, it adds to the, the sparkle to do it, the special curiosity of writing the history of one's own times. But you're quite right to ask that question, Rob, because there are dangers in it, because memory is fickle. And also, you only know what you know from the newspapers and what you pick up from your own family and your own school. So you have a kind of freeze-framed mood music version of it in your head. And then when you get into the archives and the diaries, you see perhaps a very different, in some cases, very different slant on it. But in other ways, it confirms what you felt all the time. So there's an element of rediscovering the history you live through, but also, on top of that, discovering for the first time the hidden bits. And, of course, it's a high Cold War era, so the archives and the National Archives putting out all these amazingly sensitive documents on intelligence and nuclear-related matters from the Cold War added a perspective that one could only have picked up at the time in general terms. Mind you, it was very frightening living through the 60s and the early 60s of the Cold War, above all the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was a shadow over us, but the hidden history within that shadow, to mix metaphors, is one of the delights of revisiting that period. And they were very stylish politicians as well. And one of the pleasures of being a political historian 
writing about the period you actually lived through, is you move back in with a generation that's that's both recognisable and in some ways unrecognisable compared to today's political class. So all these swirling paradoxes, possibilities, go into the making of a book like this. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it, quite apart from personal charge that I've just been describing, the personal curiosity, is to share my thoughts with those who came through it with me in my own generation. It's what Melvin Bragg calls generational kinship. And I think, at least I hope it is for the, for the readers who are my age, it's rather like reading a report of a football match you actually went to the day before. And I hope the interest for them is to see what I made of it compared to what they made of it. So it's perils and pleasures writing the history of one's own times. And you just alluded there to the Cold War, which clearly was a, a major global phenomenon at that point. How much was that affecting people in Britain who weren't necessarily directly involved in all the various conflicts going on, but did it really cast a big shadow here? We were very close to the Russian Red Army, really. I remember Macmillan annoyed Kennedy when it, on the telephone during the Cuban Missile Crisis when the Russians had put missiles on Cuba, which were going to bring within range of their nuclear weapons, for the first time, large swathes of the United States. And Uncle Harold McMillan, in that sort of languid way, said, well, you see, Jack, you get used to it. We've been in the range of the rockets like that for a very long time. You get used to it, you know. And also the British Army of the Rhine was a huge deployment of troops and aircraft, not many hundreds of miles from our own shores. And national service was just ending in the early 60s. So many families were touched by this. But also you didn't need a degree in theoretical physics to know what a mushroom cloud produced by a hydrogen bomb would do to your cities. So we grew up in the shadow of the bomb. My generation, I was born in 1947, was sort of coterminous with the Cold War, really, because that was the year it first bit seriously, it was 1947. So we were the children of the uranium age who grew up in the shadow of the atomic threat. And it was there all the time. Didn't mean to say we were obsessed by it and preoccupied by it, but at moments of peril, like the Berlin crisis of 61, or above all Cuba in October 62, you felt it. And I can feel it now as I'm talking to you. It comes back to me. And Harold Macmillan, who you mentioned there, is perhaps the key figure in this book. What, what is your overall assessment of him as a prime minister? He was a nearly great prime minister. If he'd pulled off the first application to join what was then the European Economic Community, he would have been seen as a great prime minister with a grand design in his head to place the United Kingdom, as it were, as the broker between the United States, the special relationship country, and the Europe of the then six, as it was, the six founder members. And he would have been seen as a geopolitician of the first order because of General de Gaulle's veto that was snatched away from him and his premiership never really recovered. But he was a fascinating man because he was a classical scholar. He was steeped in history. And reading his diaries are an absolute delight, partly because he has a wonderfully acid way of looking at certain people, but also because he tries to relate things to the grand sweep of history in which he'd been nurtured. He was steeped and marinated in the classical learning. And it doesn't half help if you've got a highly literate person whose diary you move into. He's an example of um, not quite moving into number 10 with him, But as he wrote this diary every evening in his spidery handwriting, it's a nightmare to read in the original because he had a bullet through his hand in the Great War, following his thinking day by day. It's an absolute delight. He was a study in ambiguity. My friend Anthony Sampson wrote a very good biography of him in the late 60s called Macmillan, A Study in Ambiguity. He specialised in ambiguity, but he had real roots in the learning, both classical and historical, and he, he used words as weapons. 
and he was a considerable ham actor as well. So all in all, he was one of the most stylish prime ministers of the 20th century, but a nearly great one. And I, the interesting thing, actually, Rob, was when he retired through ill health in 63, in October 63, and that diary ceased to be the main, sort of one of the main sources for the book, I missed him. <laughs> I felt as if I'd moved out with him. It's strange, isn't it? I only ever met him once when I was a very young journalist. 1975, I think it was. And I was writing a profile of Lord Hailsham for the Times newspaper where I was a young journalist then. One of Hailsham's memoirs had come out. He wrote two or three books, which could be called memoirs. And I went to see Macmillan in Macmillan's publishing house which he was part of, of course. And he laid on a great command performance. I think I was 29, just for me. He was famous for these tremendous television shows he put on, being interviewed by Bob McKenzie from the LSE. But he did it just for me. I was terribly flattered, terribly flattered. So to some degree, I fell under his spell. You have to be careful of falling under the spell of the people you write about. But he was a fascinating man to walk through the early 60s with. And so the big the big failure in the end for him was the failure to get into the EEC. And of course, we're now having all these these arguments again. Why at that time was Britain so keen to join precursor to the European Union? And was there the same opposition that there is now to European integration? There was a lot of opposition because of the sovereignty argument. That's always been one of the things that's run right through, this ancient sovereign nation. It didn't come naturally to many Brits to pool sovereignty with other countries. Clement Attlee, for example, my one political hero, his last ever speech was relayed to me by Douglas Jay, who was a friend of mine, who Harold Wilson had sacked from his cabinet in 67 for being unkeen on Europe. The word sceptic wasn't in use then. And he set up a group of like-minded Labour MPs and they got Clem Attlee to talk to them. And Douglas described it to me. Clem got up on the stage, it was a matter of very few words. The common market, he said, the so-called common market of six nations, know them all well. Very recently, this country spent a great deal of blood and treasure rescuing four of them from attack by the other two and sat down. <laughs> the sovereignty argument. But the Macmillan's impulse was he wanted Britain to have influence in the world. And he knew that our economy was flagging compared to the economic miracles the six were experiencing, the original six on the continent of Europe. And above all, his impulse, I think, for going in was political, geopolitical, place in the world, influence in the world, as well as boosting the faltering British economy. So for Macmillan, it was, we described it in those days, or it was described to us as the cold douche theory, the cold shower theory, that joining this highly competitive trading group with their dynamic economies would be as invigorating as taking a cold shower that would shape British industry out of its torpor and got us onto a new trajectory of sustained growth. It didn't quite turn out like that when we finally got it in 73, because it was in the middle of an oil price crisis, you see. But when Mellon had this design, called it his grand design, of being the broker between the United States and the EEC, but General de Gaulle had other ideas, and he was snatched away from him. And the most poignant entries in the diary are those in mid-January, when it all goes wrong, the gloom that descends upon him. But the European question, of course, then, then as now, was very difficult for British politics to handle because it's not a left-right question and our party structure is organised on left-right lines. It divides parties from within and how we know that now, don't we, as well as not rather than between. And also it takes on for many, even the most sort of mature and sober people, the, it's, it's almost like a secular equivalent of a war of religion. 
otherwise quite calm people go slightly batty when the European question intrudes. And there are elements of that then there, of course, in the early days. But it's a different outfit we were joining. In the Treaty of Rome, everybody knew, or pretty well everybody knew, took and paid any attention. The first sentence of the Treaty of Rome of 57 talks about ever closer union. But the Brits somehow persuaded themselves that once we got in, all this French philosophical waffle would be taken care of. And the hard practical Brits with its superb diplomatic service would essentially run the place. And it was, above all, a free trade arrangement that it wouldn't be seen as some great political federation in the, in the making, that it was to boost economies. So we lullabied ourselves about what it would be like. And I remember... Richard Wilson, the former cabinet secretary, saying to some of my MA students at Queen Mary some years ago now, that we Brits are very funny. We go into our big constitutional changes as if under anaesthetic. And we wake up so many years later and say, did we really mean it to be like this? Well, even though we didn't get in in 63, the plan was to get in in 63, 64, ahead of the 64 election, which the Conservatives had then triumphed in all that. That was the political calculation, which of course was dashed by de Gaulle. But once we went in in 73, Wilson's law, if I can call it that, really did apply. It's as if we'd gone in not quite realising what we were taking on. The Economist magazine came up with a lovely name for that early application, Brentry, the years before Brentry. And what a great PhD thesis it will be for somebody, some young scholar, let alone the book of his or her lifetime, really, to do the kind of study of what Chris Pat calls the psychodrama of Britain and Europe from pre-Brentry to Brentry and to Brexit and beyond. What a book. So another major international development going on at this point, which is where the title of the book comes from, is decolonisation and the end of the empire. How keenly was that felt back in Britain? It's such an interesting period because until the 1959 election was through, there was the beginnings, more than the beginnings of decolonisation, with the Indian subcontinent, huge change in '47 what became India and Pakistan shortly afterwards, Burma. And then the Gold Coast, what's now Ghana in Africa in 57. And other countries were on the way to it. Nigeria in particular was on the way to it and was independent in 1960. But what I call the dash for the exit was only determined by Macmillan and his ministers after the 59 election. And above all, when he put the, Ian MacLeod, who was a man of near genius, really, into the colonial office. And MacLeod thought we really had to do it quickly and get it over with. Many would argue, despite some of it being bloodstained, particularly the terrible communal violence in India, 47, and Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, took a long time and was bloodstained as well. Many in my generation, even though we had a late imperial childhood, we grew up with all of this and had a sense of the empire. We came to think, at least I did, and some, I think many of my friends did too, but nothing became us like the leaving of it, that it was done with a degree of dignity. And there was an element of careful work in it, because unlike the European question, it was it was a huge geopolitical shift, which the European question is too, of course. But the timetabling of imperial withdrawal was largely in the hands of British ministers. And it was in negotiations with the emergent governments in the independent countries. It didn't involve 27 other countries, and it didn't drive us to distraction. Some could argue, not that I do in the book, that many were surprised by how little effect or seemingly little effect the withdrawal from empire had on the British psyche. Maybe what we're going through on Europe now is the delayed effect of it. Because it's all about great powder and influence in the world. But I do like to think that nothing became as like the leaving of it, even though some of the countries that were given independence 
haven't entirely flourished in the years since. But the Commonwealth still goes on. In this generation, we still all believed in the Commonwealth, you know. So I, I still do. I remember as a young boy in the 50s getting the Empire Annual as a Christmas present, you know, with an introduction by the Australian Prime Minister. And when you read the Eagle comic, which all young boys did of my age in the 50s, it was a combination of modernity and science and technology. The New Calder Hall, the first civil nuclear power station to put power into a civil national grid. And you had sort of cutouts you could make of these things. The new Gatwick Airport going to solve London's air traffic problems forever, au contraire. But all running alongside stories of empire, which would be deeply offensive if we read today. So we had a strange upbringing in which we had a sense of empire, albeit fading. We were taught, of course, the noble version of empire. We didn't see it in the way that we would now see it as stolen lands. And uh, it's very interesting. But the, the dash for the exit really speeded up after the 59 election. So as this book covers 60-64, it's a sort of high noon of decolonisation. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He did lots of charitable work in the East End where he was greatly, greatly loved. He's a wonderful man. But the trouble is he was sharing the favours of Christine Keeler with the Russian naval attaché, which is bad news if you're Secretary of State for War. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How much also at this stage was World War II still influencing the politics and society of the time? Was And was there in any way, a kind of clash between those who'd lived through it and those who hadn't really? We all grew up in the shadow of the war, even if we hadn't lived through it. Um, I have three elder sisters who can remember the war. And like most households, certainly really into the early 60s, I'm sure I remember rightly, many conversations at home would begin with either before the war, during the war or after the war. It was the thing, the template against which we tested things. And we had lost a third of our wealth. And when I was growing up in North London in Finchley in the 50s, there were bomb sites everywhere. Our adventure playgrounds, we didn't call them that, were bomb sites, you see, and so you could see the scars of it all. And I can remember the days of rationing, which didn't end until 1954. And we'd come through valiantly. We'd stood alone for that crucial year, 40 to 41. And we went to the cinema once a week, and there was war films. And there were war comics. And the memoirs that I began to read in the Sunday newspapers were war memoirs. So even though I'd not fought... And Dad was in a reserved occupation. He didn't fight in it. Uncles did and so on. Relations did. Every household was touched by the Second World War. And, of course, the, the front line for a long time was the British cities being bombed and the siege economy. I remember, I think it was the great Richard Hulgut, the cultural historian, said that British women in particular acquired a siege economy of the mind. Those that had been in the war could never throw anything away in case it might come in useful again. And I remember that very much. So we did live in the shadow of the war. And also, you could see the attempt to get into the EEC as the final bit of masonry in the post-war settlement. We had a welfare state, which the Beveridge Report had outlined in 42. 
We had Secondary Education for All with 44 Education Act, Full Employment White Paper 44, Health Service 48, NATO 1949, Collective Security Roof over all this, Beneficial Improvement. And getting into Europe was the final bit. That's how it seemed to many. And of course, the impulse, part apart from great power questions, was the never again impulse in terms of war. If you pulled the war-making industries, which is why the coal and steel community was the first bit, Germany and France couldn't go to war with each other ever again. And this impulse, this very noble impulse behind the early notions of Europe, which is almost entirely forgotten now, was very much still around in the early 60s. But overlaying it all was that Cold War. The wartime experience was shared and vivid, but the novelty bit, the truly alarming bit, that could mean in everything in a thermonuclear flash inside one afternoon was the bomb, being children of the bomb. And then also at this stage, how far was Britain, as well as Europe, looking towards America? And you also have at this point the glamorous young president, JFK. Yes. There was anti-Americanism, of course, because the British left was always ambivalent about America. And in the Cold War, there were dissenters who saw it as a, a form of American imperialism, which I think is a very misguided way of looking at it. But the United States was in some ways still, for some, the last best hope. And we'd had Lend-Lease in the war, we'd had martial aid after the war. And... As you say, the, the wonderfully dazzling figure of Jack Kennedy winning the presidential election just in 1960, the boy wonder president. And Jean Seaton, the cultural historian, has done some very interesting work about how what she calls the politics of appearance began to take root in our country as well as the United States. And how Harold Wilson, who was not as good looking as Jack Kennedy, not to be unfair to Harold, but what talked about 100 days of dynamic action, which Kennedy-like he would undertake if he became prime minister. So Kennedy made the political weather here to a remarkable degree. And of course, many of the movies were American. And the Frank Sinatra generation, the crooners, and the rock and roll, all American. And large numbers of Americans lived here, not just working in the city of London as they now do, but on a very considerable swathe of United States bomber bases and intelligence bases. So the Yanks were here, they, they'd gone home in their large numbers in '45. But they were a great presence. And I remember going to college in the late 60s, um, mid to late 60s, and a lot of Americans in British universities. So that was a cultural presence. And the rock and roll, really. The rock and... Somebody once described American imperialism as coca colonization <laughs> we, were, we were coca colonized as much as many other countries were. And then on the, on the political front, how strong was the special relationship at this point between... British Prime Ministers and American Presidents. McMillan and Eisenhower, Kennedy's predecessor, got on very well. They'd worked together in North Africa in the war. Eisenhower's the military man, obviously, and McMillan is the minister resident in North Africa for Churchill. And they had a very personal relationship. But the remarkable thing was how well he got on with Kennedy, because their styles of life were very different, and the age gap was very considerable. There were family connections as well, admittedly. And Kennedy had grown up with many of the Macmillan era figures when his father was ambassador here at the end of the 30s and the beginning of the war. But that special relationship was quite crucial. For example, when you read the transcripts of the conversations between Kennedy and Macmillan throughout the crucial days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they're every night. It was quite remarkable. People didn't realise how intimate the relationship was. They built it up to that point where Kennedy would use him as a sounding board. And Macmillan had to be careful not to make too much of this in public, otherwise the intimacy would be lost. But it's quite extraordinary. 
very, very close. It's one of the high watermarks of the special relationship. Obviously, Roosevelt and Churchill in the war, Kennedy and Macmillan in the early 60s, Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 80s. So it was one of the zeniths, if such a word exists, of the special relationship. And the intimacy of the nuclear relationship was re-established when collaboration on nuclear weapons was restored in 1958. And the navies, the two navies work amazingly closely together. And the intelligence partnership, which we never didn't know about in those days, which is very, very intimate and still is, is based on running on the World War II intelligence relationship into the peace. So all of this is going on. And one of the joys of going back to that period so many years afterwards is you can get the documents that reflect that, that were nowhere near being declassified in the Cold War for obvious reasons, and indeed many of them were retained in the National Archives longer than the normal 30 years because they're inherent sensitivity. So only when the Cold War was dipping into memory could these be released. So as an element of discovery in these intimate bits of the special relationship, the key to which is, apart from the personal relationships which matter, the special nuclear and the special intelligence. And then in Britain, politically, this is the time that's known as the political consensus. How much consensus was there really? Consensus is a relative term. It's never complete. For example, there were always rows about public ownership, which the Conservatives were not keen on, and Labour was. But there was a consensus about what we used to call the mixed economy welfare state. You'd have a mixture of public and private enterprise, and the welfare state would be funded at the dividend out of a, a partnership between government, employers and Labour, this is the era when the National Economic Development Council was set up to try and do some proper planning, indicative planning, setting 4% growth rate a year as the target, which we never met, of course, except in tiny little moments. The consensus was relative, but both front benches, it was never complete on the back benches of the parties where the partisanship really lies. But the front benches were very, their critics would say, corporate. They wanted industry and labour to collaborate with government assistance to produce a better outcome. What the, on the continent was called co-partnerships, social partnerships. And so it was a relative consensus. And also the two main parties had worked together in the war in the coalition government. They knew each other. There was a kind of intimacy, which you don't get now, of shared experience. And also it was a very male-dominated world, British politics then. They'd been in the, in the Great War, the big figures. They were that age in which everybody was thrown in together and they had an almost romantic view of Britain as an extended family. All of that has since changed as well, I regret to say, because I'm very much a child of the post-war consensus. And when you think about the banner under which they flew, I have a view that each generation likes to embroider onto a banner its shared aspirations. And I touched on some of them already. The, the banner under which my generation flew was the beverage report, welfare, education, health, NATO, environment to Commonwealth, gold standard constitutional monarch. It's a hell of a banner, actually, to which you can rally in bad times. And it raises the question, what kind of banner can we raise afterwards if there's any attempt to get agreement on anything in the British political spectrum after we've finally got through Brexit? But it was a high level of relative consensus, but never complete. So like all good historical debates that feature in exam papers, it's one that will never die because everybody has a different judgment about the level at which there was a consensus, something that was never a consensus at all. But I'm a consensualist by nature. I can't see a consensus without wanting to jump on it. So I'm predisposed to think there was one. How much of an issue was class at this time? Class always lurks, doesn't it, in Britain, particularly in the education system. 
If I had a magic wand, I can talk like this now, I'm getting old. I would wave it over that bit just to get rid of it. How we've allowed class and status obsessions to get inside our educational thinking and our structures to the extent that it has, I know I, I, I do have an idea why, but it's one of my greatest single regrets. Because this is where we should have a republic of the intellect. I mean, the Almighty didn't distribute intellectual curiosity according to the socio-economic status of the loins that bring us into this world, did he? And yet we behave as if he did sometimes. And it keeps coming back in different forms in different generations, and it embitters us. It embitters us. And this is the era when Michael Young had written The Rise of the Meritocracy, the great sociologist Michael Young, which when I first read it, as a grammar school boy and a bit of a swat, I thought it was a manifesto for me because his calculation was IQ plus effort equals merit. And I thought, what's wrong with the clever boys and girls like me inheriting the earth? Well, it was a terrible warning as well. It was a satire. But it was also a warning about what happens to a society if you just if value is determined only by merit as revealed through competitive examination, how narrowing that is and how disruptive of decent relationships between people. And that was very much in my mind in that era. And Anthony Sampson wrote a series of what he called Anatomies of Britain, which were all on this theme as well. It was an institutional history of Britain as it had just become, wonderful up-to-date stuff. I remember getting the second Anatomy of Britain as a school prize in 1965. So we were very preoccupied by it, as we still are. It's the, it's, of all the things that we try to get rid of, we can never get rid of this. I've lost count of how many prime ministers, one way or another, claimed they were going to get rid of the class obsession in this country, and they never do, they never do. And I suppose in the decade following your book, we see a lot of changes in terms of women's rights, legislation about racial equality, and also for homosexual people as well. Yes. To what extent were the seeds of this being sown in the period you're writing about? I regard 60 to 64, my period in this book, as the anteroom to the high 60s. The high 60s is when the Labour government comes in and introduces so many of the reforms that you've just enumerated. But they were in the making, they were in the ether, and people had done the kind of intellectual R&D on them. Roy Jenkins wrote, I think, what was it called for the 59 election? Why Vote Labour? Something like that. There was a series that were published, Why Vote Conservative, Why Vote Labour? And he talked about the ingredients of a civilised society. It's very much a manifesto for what became greater rights for women, uh, sexual preferences, abolition of capital punishment, all these things you've enumerated, and equal pay and all, all, all the rest of it. But it, that came later than the period I'm writing about, but it was very much in the air, very much in the air. And it was when the post-war generation of politicians began to reach their stride as well. It was a generational change as well. But it was quite hard fought. There was quite a lot of resistance to quite a lot of it. Strange though it seems looking back now. Perhaps one of the defining political episodes in this period was the Profumo scandal, which certainly helped contribute to Macmillan's downfall. Yes. There'd obviously been other political scandals over the years. Why was this one so important and had such consequences? Well, the sex lives of ministers rarely got into the newspapers in those days. That's such a huge change from today. <laughs> I have to be careful a bit because I, I knew Jack Profumo in his, in his older years. We were on a charity together and I liked him very much. He did lots of charitable work in the East End where he was greatly, greatly loved. He was a wonderful man. But the trouble is he was sharing the favours of Christine Keeler with the Russian naval attaché, which is bad news if you're Secretary of State for War for the Queen, isn't it? And also, jet-lagged, he lied to the House of Commons about having any involvement with this particular lady. 
it all became bundled up with notions of, of establishment stuff, establishment cover-up, and it wore Macmillan out. And Macmillan, of course, didn't like talking about sex much because we didn't they certainly didn't know this at the time. Lady Dorothy Macmillan had been having an affair with Lord Boothby, Robert Boothby, since the 1920s, so late 20s, I think it was. And so Macmillan had a kind of aversion to all this being talked about. And he was absolutely shattered by it all, on top of all the other setbacks. And it was a very sad demise to his premiership, really. So of, of all the changes that were going on at this time, which ones do you think would have actually seemed to have the biggest impact on ordinary people? I don't, to be honest, Rob, like the word ordinary people, because I've never met an ordinary person, but you know what I mean. I'm in no way criticising your question, but what we all felt was, 63 was the year we felt it was going to be different. It's partly because of the pop music. There's a huge leap between, with all due respect to Sir Cliff Richard and Sir Paul McCartney, let alone Mick Jagger. The nature of music changed, pop music changed. And that profumo summer of 63, all sorts of stuff was talked about and written about that hadn't been before. The Denning report into it was, we all pretended in my grammar school that we were men of the world and knew all about that world. I still haven't caught up with at least a third of it, you know. And so you had a feeling that this decade was going to be different from the 50s. But on top of that, the way which affected everybody was the spread of affluence. Not on the grand scale, but for the first time, I can remember the first time I ever ate a proper steak. It was in a Bernie Inn in 1960 in Newport, where my Auntie Molly was a friend of the proprietor. My Auntie Molly kept a pub in Newport. And to eat steak, which wasn't stewed beef in a tin, which is what we called steak in those days, was an enlightenment, you know. And it, was, it sounds sort of rather sad now, as if this was a great moment, a very exciting moment. But it was. And the spread of affluence, so that you, you, the, 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 what you ate on the table changed. And indeed, there was a reverse takeover of the British stomach by the British Empire. Many, many more Indian restaurants and Chinese restaurants of Hong Kong and so on. But above all, we were optimistic that somehow each generation would be incrementally better off, not just in physical terms, with the NHS getting first big hospital building programmes since the war, for example, or in nutritional terms, but in educational terms. The Robbins Report on Higher Education in 63 argued that we needed to expand the age group going to university very substantially so that anybody who got the A-levels required could get a place. Now, all this was, in today's language, transformational, and it was the politics of optimism, and both parties competed to see who could offer the greatest economic growth path to fund all of this. And we were not pessimists, apart from this bomb business, which occasionally intruded into this otherwise rosy scene. Of course, there were still great inequalities. There was the class tension that you talked about. But it, overall, the balance was on the, the, weighted on the side of optimism, which it most certainly is not at the moment. So one, another one of the pleasures of revisiting this era to write this book, while living in this strange country called Brexit land, has been to pick up again the sense of optimism, that things could be made better. And indeed, the so social reforms that you were talking about, that we called conscience bills as they went through the House of Commons, because MPs were given a free vote on them, and the, and the, the basis of the race relations legislation, which you also touched on. The, the society was going to become richer, cleverer, healthier, and fairer. And all of this was not Pollyannaish wishful thinking. It seemed to be within our grasp, within our grasp. As, as we came out of the austere shadow of World War Two, So does this feel like a time of great modernity? Or does this feel in particularly a very modern period? It felt modern because the technology was becoming modern. I remember listening to and reading the, the Reith Lectures of 64, The Age of Automation by Sir Leon Bagrit, 
of Elliot Automation, in which he predicted a kind of internet. He didn't quite use that, not quite as the one as he'd known it, but something very like it. And an age of economic abundance, where the main problems for governments would be how to redistribute the dividend of this transformation and teaching people to use their leisure better. And by now, the year we're having our conversation, we'd be working a 15-hour week. But this felt very modern. Concorde, a symbol of Anglo-French collaboration, the first supersonic airliner was there too. We hadn't got our anxieties about civil nuclear power then either. This was going to be abundant and cheap and the era of fusion, which really would be abundant and cheap, nuclear fusion, seemed to be within touching distance. So wherever you looked, there was modernity on offer, beginnings of package holidays, jet travel for all, and it's on the horizon, and medical techniques, new, new procedures. And also very important in 1962, the Royal College of Physicians published Smoking and Health, first time we realised fully the dangers to health of smoking, and smoking fell, at least initially, quite substantially. So all of these things, when you, when you put them together, it's the march of science, the march of medicine, the march of technology, and all the while the optimistic overlay was there, and the music was much better. And I realise this is outside the scope of your book, but... At what point do you think this all begins to unravel? If I was doing a follow-up volume to this on the 60s, I'd call it No Satisfaction, not just because it's one of the Rolling Stones' greatest hits, but because everybody came at the end of the 60s dissatisfied, wherever they were on the political spectrum, left, right, traditionalists about social matters or, or progressives, however you want to define them. They thought somehow by the end of the 60s it had all been rather a letdown because the economic growth did not improve despite all the efforts of the Wilson government. The inequalities remained, although they were mitigated. It began to tilt trade union power, began to be seen to be excessive and negative in many people's eyes. A kind of optimistic social model that we still could believe in in the early 60s. It was looking very tarnished by the end of the 60s. And what really knocked it on the head, however, was the quadrupling of oil prices in the early 70s, which meant that public expenditure had to be cut and economic growth went down and it became much harder to govern. We became scratchy with ourselves as a society, and there were growing industrial troubles. And the two main political parties became much more partisan on left and right. So the 60s did unravel in the 70s. The politics of optimism had given way to the politics of anxiety, certainly by the mid-70s. Writing this book now at a distance of more than half a century, do you feel nostalgic for that time, or do you think that, on balance, the progress we've made since then makes this a better time to be alive? When I go to a hospital clinic, I'm bloody glad I'm living now rather than then, even though there were great advances. In many ways, for all our troubles, we are kinder and gentler with each other. We're less judgmental of other people's preferences, whether they be sexual or behavioural or whatever, as long as they're not criminal, than we were then. It was still quite a harsh society then, but I do miss that sense of optimism and uh, the thrill of that first stake. I know, I know I'm talking as if the alimentary canal matters more to me than the Suez Canal, but in some ways it does. Because going back to the 50s, I think I put it in my book on the 50s, because this is the third of a trilogy. The, one, the first one, Never Again, covers 1945, 51, and the 50s is covered by the second one. Is uh, Having my first bottle of Coca-Cola, frozen Coca-Cola, not frozen, chilled, on Hampstead Heath when I was in the Cubs in Whetstone in North London. We went to the fair that used to be on Hampstead Heath in those days, perhaps it still is, and out of one of those great Coke machines, these great fridges, very American symbol that was, 
I had my first bottle of chilled Coca-Cola and the taste buds had never experienced anything like it before and they haven't experienced anything like it since. So it's funny how, how evocative. Things like that, but above all, the music is what evokes it again. And the other change, I suppose, in the 60s, is, and very much more now pronounced, is it was still a society covered in smoke and grit because the railways were going to be modernised through electricity and diesel. But there were still those beautiful steam locomotives, which I did so love, pouring out smoke. And people still had coal fires. The Clean Air Act had been passed by Parliament in 1956, but it hadn't worked its way through. So Britain smelt differently. I grew up to the sniff of coal smoke and sulphur in the air. And how I miss those steam locomotives, Rob. I can see them now. Those beautiful, the nearest machines to people that mankind has ever created. And they were just going in my time. And I used to stand on the school playing fields, going around to the bike sheds to get the bike to cycle home in the Cotswolds. And the line from Swindon to Gloucester was just by our playing field. And you'd hear a plaintive whistle sometimes, and there'd be one live locomotive pulling six dead ones to the scrapyards in either Barry Island or Sharpness by the seventh. And this literally was the end of an era. These wonderful romantic machines going to the knackers yard. I'm filling up. <laughs> that was Peter Hennessy. Winds of Change, Britain in the Early 60s is out now, published by Alan Lane. You can also read an extensive review of the book in our November issue, which is on sale now and also contains articles on William the Conqueror, Cold War Berlin, Richard III's brothers and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers now. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when James Walvin will be discussing the history of slave rebellions. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.